Hello to you, I do hope you're well and a very warm welcome to this A-level Religious Studies Revision Session. I'm Ben Wardle and coming up today, it's a topic I absolutely love, so prepare yourselves for a lot of enthusiasm as we talk about the person of Jesus Christ. Now this fits in on the developments in Christian thought topic on the specification and we are looking at what Jesus was known for, what made him unique as an individual. He is of course the central figure of the Christian religion, the clue is in the name, Jesus Christ, Christianity and you know this says a lot, it has been, his life has been the foundation for our whole system of belief which today is subscribed to by literally over a billion people, you know Christians worldwide believing in this man and believing that he is the literal, the incarnate son of God and what this topic is all about is exploring Jesus um, from a step back if you like, from saying who actually was he or, or who actually is he if you believe he is still alive today. And what we'll be doing is exploring the historical Jesus. If we look at this man who was around 2,000 years ago, based on the evidence and the examples that we have got in the New Testament of the Bible, we will be trying to put together an understanding of who he was and whether he was God. You know, this is a key, key debate in Christianity, if not the key debate. You know, whether Jesus was in fact God or was he just a good moral teacher or was he a man with a good political message that was radically going to shake things up. And we've got to consider Consider that. You know, we've got the idea of God, monotheism in Christianity, um, which is seen again in Islam and Judaism and other monotheistic religions who believe in one God. But then Christianity takes it further with Jesus in that they say he is both fully God and fully man. So he's not just a man that came along and founded a religion. He is a man who is more than just a human being, but he's actually God himself. He is, you know, the person of God, is the incarnation of God in the real world. Now, thinking about Jesus like that has genuine significance because he is no longer understood as just a human being such as you or I, or as an inspirational human being that has come along, taught some really good things, and we've thought, yes, I want to follow that, I want to believe that. When we look at Jesus in this way, we come to an understanding of him where he is God. And that is highly, highly significant in terms of, well, how on earth is that possible? And what are the implications of that for our understanding of him as a person? So this topic is all about the person of Jesus Christ, attempting to understand what he represents and who he was. And for the OCR specification course, there are three key ideas you need to know. So we're going to talk through, very simple today, talk through those three key ideas. And they are that Jesus was the son of God, that Jesus was a teacher of wisdom, and that Jesus was a political liberator. Now, if you look at the first one, Jesus was the son of God, that is obviously what is held as correct by say the catholic church today by the vast vast majority of christians who take holy communion and believe they're taking the body of christ who pray to jesus who believe that he died and rose again who believe in the resurrection the idea he is the son of god he is divine and there are two camps there's christology from above where we're saying that jesus came from heaven and he is divine which is where this idea of the son of the god of son of god sorry fits in and then we have the other camp christology from below which is the idea that jesus was born just like any other human being and he was a human being who lived on this planet um, and he had something special about him so that he was this special inspiring teacher or that he was a radical political revolutionary who called for a preferential option for the poor who demanded you know better social justice and 
man who called for the liberation of those who were outcasts in society. And that's the Christology from below, because it's the idea that he was born as a normal human being and lived as a human being. You know, he breathed, he had a heart, um, he had lungs, he walked like we do, and that's that he was a human being with these special qualities, whereas the Christology from above approach is the idea that he was the son of God, that he is literally God, so he is not human as we would understand a human being today there's a lot of debate about that you know we have so much out there talking about how jesus the catholic church essentially believes jesus is fully man and fully divine so he is one substance but within that one substance he is two things he is both fully human as a human being that is born and he is fully divine and fully god as the incarnation but we don't really need to get into that too much thank bloody God, quite literally. But what we will be doing is exploring him as the son of God and this Christology from above and uh, as a teacher of wisdom and as a political figure, as a political liberator in the ideas of liberation theology. Really interesting ideas about black theology coming up um, and that Christology from below approach. We will be using a lot, a very important thing for this module, for this topic, is that you're using the text, which is obviously the New Testament of the Bible. I'll be using the New International Version today. Whatever version you use at your school, college, whatever, make sure you've just been consistent in how you're quoting it and how you're using it, just for the sake of clarity for you at the end of the day. But for each of the three topics that we're going to look at now, we have got biblical support, biblical evidence and biblical ideas to back up what we are saying, because all of this, when it comes to the developments in Christian thought, comes down to the core and um, primary sources, which is the New Testament text. So yes, we're going to be looking at the historical Jesus in context. Because remember, you know, whatever you think, whatever you believe, he, from what we understand in the Bible and what, you know, uh, theologians have now deduced, he was a individual who walked on this earth 2,000 years ago. And even people who don't believe in Jesus as the son of God, you know, or as a good teacher at all, they accept that Jesus lived. There was a man, we think called Jesus, whatever the translation back then was, who went around and taught in this way. You know, there is a consensus that that genuinely happened. What the debate is over and what this topic is all about is what he actually was. Was he a political revolutionary? Was he a moral teacher, like a good priest or a good rabbi? You know, was he a rabbi? Or was he genuinely something superhuman? Was he genuinely the incarnation of God 2,000 years ago? And what are the implications of that for how the church talks about him, how people in general talk about him, and how we understand him? I want to start with the Son of God idea. So this idea from the Christology from above that Jesus Christ was the literal Son of God. But not only that he was the Son of God, this is where it gets complicated, that he is also God. Because of course, as we know from Karl Barth, in the Christian tradition, there is this very key idea of the Trinity, which fundamentally distinguishes Christianity and the Christian belief system from any other. And it's the idea you have the Father, God, Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, they are three different things, but the same. And this is where, you know, throughout church history, there has been massive, massive debate about the uh, substance and the nature of both God, the Son and the Holy Spirit, because the church holds today that they are all the same, that they are all equal, they are all of the same substance, but they are all at the same time different. And the idea is that Jesus, as the Son of God, is both the Son of God and also the incarnation of God. So essentially, in a nutshell, that Jesus is 
divine. So if you're explaining that Jesus is the son of God, you are saying he is divine. And what are the consequences of this? We obviously see them in the, the uh, Bible in terms of the miracles he can do, in terms of the walking on water, in terms of all the things he says about my father. My father's house has many rooms. No one can come to the father except through me. So we've got all of this that's going on. And then we've got in the church the church you know has debated this for a long long time and in 451 AD so 400 500 years after the death the uh, that we think of Jesus because obviously if there was a resurrection he ain't gone anywhere my loves and um, the idea is at the council of Nicaea all the bishops of the time gathered together and they debated the nature of Christ because lots and lots of different schools of thought were developing and they're giving you a little history of the Christian church I hope you're enjoying it Get yourself a nice cup of tea, get a biscuit out, you know, read the headlines on dailymail.com. See what Kim K's doing whilst I go on about the big JC. All right, so it's the idea um, that at this time in the early church, there was a lot of um, fractures. You know, there was a group who were known as the adoptionists who believed that Jesus was just a man who was born like anybody else and then he was adopted by God at birth and the chosen at birth after he was born by God he was like oh I quite like him I'm going to use him as my little teacher and then he was abandoned when he was killed on the cross by God um, or this school of Arianism who um, had strong beliefs about the human nature of Jesus and that he was more human than divine and all this kind of thing and the church wanted some consistency. It thought, look, if we're going to have a strong case here where we can spread our teachings and we can, you know, promote them globally or, you know, reach out as Jesus wanted, you know, we need to know what we're saying. We need to be on the same page as a church. And so at the Council of Nicaea, from which the Nicene Creed comes, the bishops decided this idea that Jesus is both fully divine and fully human. So I've got the creed here. I'm not going to read it all, but... It's a prayer that is still said, say, in Catholic Mass today. Um, and it's the idea, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. So the key points I'm taking away from that is this idea he was begotten, not made. So Jesus was not made in the same way that all other human beings are made. He already existed from the beginning of time. This is something we see in the introduction to the Gospel of John. We'll be talking about that in a little moment, literally one minute's time. <laughs> Stay on the edge of your seat, my love. Um, and we see in the idea um, that true God from true God, so that God gave to the world himself, if you like, because they are equal. Um, and he is the only begotten son of God, so he's the only one, he's unique. There is one Jesus Christ, consubstantial with the Father. This idea about the Trinity and the nature of substance, the idea that they, whilst they are different in their physical manifestation, they are actually the same um, substance and they are of the same substance consubstantial they're the same which gives Jesus that status as divine if he wasn't equal to God he couldn't be divine he could be like a human being with a nice moral message which is an approach we're going to go on to explore but the idea here is very clear isn't it that he is consubstantial with the father which gives them this equality that they have um so that's what the Nicene Creed has to say and that is what is taken on by the Catholic Church and by the Church today, the idea that Jesus is divine. It's not just that he's a good teacher or that he was a chosen one, he is 
God. He is the incarnation of God. Um, and that leads to, say, when we're talking about exclusivism and religious pluralism, it leads to that idea that it only is through Jesus that you can be saved because he is God. He is the one that gives people eternal life. And he says a lot about this, um, obviously, in the New Testament. We see an example of this in Mark in chapter 6 verses 47 to 52 where we have the miracle of Jesus walking on water. This is a clear example, you know, the idea of miracles being a sign of divinity. This is something biblical scholars have looked at a lot, this idea that miracles are sort of your evidence that someone is superhuman, is supernatural. They've got capabilities that don't come from their humanness, it must come from the divine, it must come from above. Um, and John chapter 9 verses 1 to 41 we see him healing a blind man. Another example of a miracle, and it could be seen as symbolic as well for him um, healing spiritual blindness, that he is there to restore the connection between man and God, which arose as a result of the fall. This brings us in lots of ideas from St. Augustine, and this idea that Jesus must be divine if he is to um, ensure people have eternal life. If we just have a situation where he is a moral teacher, how is he able to bridge the gap which is um, developed out of the fall, the idea that he's the antithesis of Adam? So he is restoring what Adam, the damage Adam has done. He's only able to do that because he is God, the only person with the power to give that forgiveness, to bridge that gap, to restore that bond and that connection is God himself. So that is why we have him as the manifestation, if you like, of the divine, as the incarnation in the world. Um, so yes, this idea that we see in um, the book of Mark, for example, of him walking on water, of feeding the 5,000, um, and then when he'd done that, it says, they begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. You know, this idea that he has these supernatural, superhuman powers, abilities, capabilities, which prove that he is not just a human being, that he is the son of God and that he is God, he is equal to, he is consubstantial with God. Um, and we see, again, in Mark uh, chapter 9, um, the transfiguration, the idea that his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. So very nice language there, symbolising that it is beyond humanity. You know, it's something humans wouldn't be capable of doing. It must come from above. It must be divine in origin. And it says, and there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus, so that he is talking with these other great biblical prophets and figures, that he has these capabilities. Um, but then, then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came down from the cloud, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. So this idea again and again and again of the divine nature of Jesus, demonstrated through the... Um, scripture. So we have that scriptural evidence and we then have the church teachings and the Nicene Creed all supporting this idea that Jesus is the son of God, that he had this not just special relationship with God but this actual connection and almost equality with God which is unprecedented and we can't see anywhere else. Um, you can ask the question, did Jesus think he was the son of God? You know, in terms of his teachings, is it later figures such as those who gathered at the um, Council of Nicaea who decided, you know what, he was actually God. He was actually the son of God. Or did Jesus know this himself at the time? Um, you know, he states, Jesus states, for example, in John chapter 8, verse 58, that he existed before Abraham. Um, 
and said, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? So this idea that he shows awareness of his divine status, you know, he says, my father's house um, has many rooms, my kingdom is not of this world, you know, all who believe in me will not perish but have eternal life. I am the way, the truth and the life. In that statement, that's quite a bold statement to be making, isn't it? So is he in that statement, you know, confirming what he believes about his divine nature and what he sees himself? He talks a lot and there's a lot of use in the New Testament of him fulfilling biblical scripture. You know, the coming of the Son of God. You know, this happened, so this may happen. So the idea that it is part of a grand plan and a grand idea and ideology that is all coming together in the person of Jesus Christ, understood as the Son of God. I then want to move on to what I see as like a more of a middle ground teaching, which is the idea that Jesus was a teacher of wisdom. Um, do you know what? If he was the son of God, I'd really like a miracle and my hair to be dyed right now, this second place. I would really love Jesus, if you don't mind. Could we just go for a nice little get rid of the ginger? Thank you so much. If you can walk on water, my love, you can work wonders with my hair, please. Mind you, it might be too much to ask. It's a lot to ask, isn't it? Right, teacher of wisdom, let's do this. All right, so it's the idea that what is significant about Jesus in these teachings, and well, in this book, is the teachings. It's the idea that all these miracles are actually irrelevant. And you're probably thinking, what? So let me introduce to you Rudolf Bultmann. He is an exceptional, I love him, theologian, okay? And his idea was that when we look at the time of the New Testament, so we look at the context in which Jesus was doing all of this apparent healing and doing all these amazing things, what he argues is that this was nothing new. At the time, you've got to remember, this was before the age of modern medicine. This was before the time of electric lights and televisions and cars and radios. A big, big thing with spiritual healers. They were everywhere. So whilst when we read the New Testament and Jesus is, you know, restoring their sight, healing leprosy, doing this, doing this, bringing people back from the dead, and we're going, oh my God, this is evidence he is divine. Rudolf Bultmann is saying when we consider the mystery and the wonder of the time of the New Testament, this is not what is exceptional about Jesus. This is not what should make him stand out to us. There were loads of people going around, you know, there's different words you can use, like charlatans, um, you know, faith healers, mystics, um, we might say today like psychics and fortune tellers. People going around claiming to have this kind of quality and claiming to have this kind of capability. And in the age before you could go and get chemotherapy, in the age before you could go and, you know, get an x-ray and get a surgery, what did people do? They would turn to these so-called faith healers, these mystics who were going around saying that they could heal people and people believed in it and maybe it worked. I don't know. I'm not holding my breath, but you know, who knows? And this is what happened. So what Bookman is saying is when we consider the wider socio-political context in which Jesus was doing all of this, what he was doing in terms of the miracles and in terms of the healing and all this mysticism was not unique. If you consider it, it was a Jewish um, society, a Jewish culture. There were a lot of people who were coming along claiming to be the Messiah, to be, you know, the next Moses, to be the um, prophet who was going to deliver them all because this is what they were expecting. This is what they were waiting for. So there would have been loads of people doing this and loads of different men 
predominantly men, I'm guessing, who had groups of disciples who would go around teaching. You know, this was before we had books, my loves. This was before you could go on the Bible prayer app. You know, if you wanted to hear teachings, you wanted to be healed, you would go and listen to these wandering mystics who did this as a profession. So this is not what was unique about Jesus. What Bultman is saying here is that we need to consider that was nothing unique. So the fact that he could walk on water, supposedly, the fact that he healed someone with leprosy, the fact that they wanted to touch his cloak to have healing, this is not what is unique about Jesus Christ. This is not what makes him stand out makes him unique as a figure. What he is saying is unique is the fact that he taught a radical message of forgiveness, a radical message of compassion. So what is actually unique about Jesus is not what he was doing, which I personally think a lot of us use as our reason for believing he is divine. It's not what he was doing because that was the norm. Because, um, you know, Rudolf Bultmann says we cannot um, treat ourselves with modern medicine and use modern technology and at the same time looking all at the mystery and the wonder of the New Testament. You know, we have to look at the context in which Jesus was doing all these things. So what he was doing was not unique. What he was saying, however, was radical. Because if you think one of the main things we know about Jesus is that he challenged the, the social norms of the day. The scene in the temple always comes to mind. He came along and he was tearing up, you know, he was throwing the tables over. He was challenging the status quo. He was challenging the socially acceptable ways of doing things. And that, um, for those who believe in him as a teacher of wisdom, is what defines him. We'll get onto this a lot more as we talk about him as a political liberator in just a moment. But what is important to note right at this moment is that as a teacher of wisdom and morality, he is seen as unique. So we can argue that the person of Jesus Christ is significant or is unique because of his radical moral teaching, because of his status as a teacher of wisdom. Um, and that doesn't necessarily undermine him entirely. It certainly undermines him as the son of God. It means he's not God. We're saying he's not God, but he's still a good moral teacher who is very enlightened. Um, you can say that. And John Hick um, is quite keen on this. He, if you remember from all the conversations about pluralism, he says we need to take a theocentric, not Christocentric approach. It's like that mountain analogy and Kant and his idea of the noumenal and the phenomenal knowledge. The idea that there are all these different paths up the mountain. Jesus is one of the moral teachers who helps us get up that mountain. He helps to carry us up that mountain and teach us and guide us to the light. But he is not God himself, but he is a moral teacher, a good teacher of wisdom who gets us there. John Hick talks about, and he's a Roman Catholic, he talks about the myth of Jesus's divinity. And he calls for the abandoning of the solar Christus principle and instead proposes that, you know, there are many different routes to heaven if you are a good person. And Jesus is one of the moral teachers who gives you the tools, who gives you the insight, who gives you the information and awareness in order to live that moral life through your actions. This is something developed by Paul Tillich, who you might know from religious language and his ideas about symbol. I do hope you've watched my video on that. Make sure you like, comment and subscribe. A little bit of English, uh, English language. Well, we do like that as well. But what I mean to say is religious language. I'm going delirious. Um, it is Paul Tillich, and he talks about the myth of the virgin birth. So the, because, of course, that is what Jesus' status as son of God is dependent on. If he was not born to a virgin, which raises all sorts of sex ethics questions, I'll tell you what, my loves. But, you know, if he was not born to a virgin 
said he would not be the son of God. You know, so that whole thing with Mary, <laughs> that whole thing with Mary is um, saying a lot. There's a lot of significance in that in terms of our understanding of Jesus Christ as the son of God or as a really lovely human being with a really great moral message. Um, and Paul Tillich, for example, says the reality is irrelevant. It is sort of the uh, participation that we have in something that matters. So he's essentially saying, well, when you read the Bible, don't take it literally. You know, in the same way that we've just said about how you can't um, think all the healing was anything unique or that if Jesus was alive today, he would be doing all that healing. Because if you think that was the norm, so he was doing something that was the norm then. So what would Jesus do if he was around today? He might be you know, a teacher, he might be a, a writer, you know, he wouldn't necessarily be walking across the River Thames going, believe in me, believe in me, you know, <laughs> or whatever he'd be doing, I don't know, I'm not here to put words in his mouth, I wouldn't do such a thing, my love, um, but he's saying it's about the participation, so it's all about this idea that actually these literal accounts of walking on water these are irrelevant. This is all a product of the time. It's all about the context. You know, the writers of the New Testament, the way they needed to convey the message and to symbolize certain things in metaphorical ways or in terms of making Jesus fit in with the other mystic healers and those who were seen as having spiritual powers at the time. But again, I'm coming back to my point that it is a teacher of wisdom or it is as a teacher of wisdom that he matters. Um, so I'm instantly drawn to a very important part of the book of Matthew, which I absolutely love. One of my, it would probably be my favourite passage in the New Testament, which is the Beatitudes. And I think this is where we see, A, how radical Jesus' message was in terms of his empowerment of the poor. And B, we also see um, the foundations for the ethical system of Christianity. And we can see this in the work of Pope Francis today, for example. And in what we understand when we talk all this about, you know, the Christian way of compassion and love, that's really got nothing to do with walking on water. But that's got a lot to do with the message Jesus Christ teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Very important teaching. So let's just go through it. Um, and he says, it's Matthew chapter 5, verse verses from the start um and it is now when jesus saw the crowds he went up on a mountainside and sat down his disciples came to him and he began to teach them so this idea presenting jesus as this moral teacher and he said blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted and then blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God, blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So we have this list of the blessed and then we get into the good stuff, all right, because what we see here is his radical agenda of teaching. So we then go through from Matthew uh, 13, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, we go through this idea of the fulfillment of the law, of what he says about murder, of adultery, divorce, oaths, eye for an eye, uh, love your enemies, give to the needy, prayer, fasting, 
treasures in heaven do not worry judging others i'm literally just reading the uh subtitles i'm going to show you that that i have highlighted in my little bible here um and basically what, uh, my point is he is giving a radical agenda for social change so here we are emphasizing that he is giving moral teachings and that this is what's important so when you're talking about the person of jesus christ and you're giving your like exam answers what you're talking about is where should christians place their emphasis or where should theologians place their emphasis when they are thinking about jesus when they are discussing him as an individual is it on the miracles and the idea he is the son of god who can heal who can rise from the dead who can walk on water who is equal to god or is it as this moral teacher who has got this radical social agenda talking about compassion kindness and eye for an eye will make the whole world blind you know do this do this do this these moral messages these spiritual ideas that he is teaching which creates him really we could then say is he any more than just another jewish rabbi with a little bit of a radical slant to him you know we know that he was in a jewish tradition that he came from that jewish context was he just another jewish rabbi who then had a little bit more of a radical social agenda that he wanted to push that little bit through and um, so we've got these ideas about whether we should be seeing him as a um, moral teacher with a moral message um, that being said, and remember evaluation always coming in, you know, we do see in even those teachings, Jesus is using language to talk about God and heaven. You know, he says, for example, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So the idea um, that he is, you know, of this world is again challenged within that in Matthew chapter um, 6 verse 19 you know when he says um, no one can serve two masters you cannot serve both God and money so again this idea that he is still spiritual you know that he's not just a teacher of you know rules or morals or whatever there is still this spiritual element to him but again we're calling into question whether that is solely an idea about um like him being the son of God or whether he could have just been an enlightened rabbi or an enlightened, um, you know, a teacher, a moral teacher, a spiritual teacher. Um, but he is not the literal son of God. So lots of interesting points. I do want to bring in here and this goes very well with the book of uh, not with the book, with the idea about Jesus as the son of God. And it is from John, the book of John, the prologue to the book of John is very, very famous, very well known for this, because it is very much supporting the idea that Jesus is the son of God. So if you are going to talk about Jesus as a teacher of wisdom and say, well, look at the Beatitudes, look at his teachings, love your neighbour as yourself. You know, he goes to the woman who's about to be stoned. You know, he who is without sin may cast the first stone. Forgive not seven, but 77 times. These moral teachings, we can say they're important and they're good. But there is still this very clear idea, such as in the Nicene Creed of 451 AD and in the prologue to the book of John, which suggests to us that Christians taking Jesus seriously see him as the son of God and also their ideas about salvation are dependent on Jesus being the son of God remember if he's not the son of God then it all goes a bit to shit 
That's not academic language. Let's not have that in the essay, but I hope it makes their point. So in uh, John chapter one, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So in that, you know, in the idea, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. We think really, really poetic, poetic, rich language there about the relationship that we have between um, Jesus and God. You know, is he just someone enlightened about God and knows about God and wants to teach about him? This would suggest he's been with God from the very beginning of the world, from the get go. So what are the consequences of that for our understanding of them and their relationship? And how does that influence how we understand Jesus Christ as a person? Um, and later on in John chapter 7, verse 28, Jesus says, Yes, you know me and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he is sent me um so again this idea that jesus is connected in this way uh, very interesting because i've just seen it in john 8 uh, chapter 8 verse 7 to 11 we have the iconic line that i absolutely love to pieces um where jesus says to the woman who is being stoned has no one condemned you then neither do i it's this idea that he without sin may cast the first stone um, so what we're seeing very clearly here in this um, parable and in this teaching, um, his moral teaching. So there are different aspects. He's a very multidimensional character. You know, if I was studying Othello, oh, I did do that, didn't I? <laughs> Go and check out that video as well, my loves. Um, I would, you know, I'd be talking about Jesus as the writer talks about Jesus. I would say they presenting him in a very multi-dimensional way. He's got all these moral, ethical, social teachings, and he's a very human-like leader, but at the same time, his language is so sort of rich in this spiritual, divine, metaphysical tone that there's sort of these very different sides to him. And it is the role of the Christian, I mean, Christians on the whole believe he is the son of God, but it is the role of the theologian to be determining and establishing what is actually right how it all works now what i want to talk about as the third one so we've done son of god and don't we know it we've done moral teacher i want us to talk about now jesus as political liberator this is perhaps the most modern current contemporary and i think interesting perspective to take on jesus because it makes him very political now something that's important to know and you will know this from your studies and if you don't, it's just a bit of common sense. There is a fascinating debate in theology about the relationship between church and state. You know, this idea, and it, again, it comes from Jesus, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. How much should the church and politics interact? You know, we seem to have this idea that the church and religion is concerned with your spiritual health. So it's all about your baptism, it's about your sins, it's about your wedding, it's about your salvation after death. Will you survive after death? And then a respect and that they don't cross over a non-overlapping magisterium, as Stephen Jay Gold called it, on this side, we've then got the state, which is concerned with things you do in this world. So whilst religion is concerned with whether you get into the next world, 
the state and politics is concerned with what you do in this world and in this lifetime and traditionally they don't overlap i mean they have in the past that's where there is such a conscious effort to make sure they don't overlap that being said in certain religions and um, such as in islam traditional islam and traditional judaism that there is very much a sense of theocracy which is the idea you know in contrast to democracy which is ruled by the people theocracy is ruled by god and the idea that it is the divine laws that should be the laws of the land. So the religious rules apply to every single person in society and that the rulers and the leaders of the country should be divinely appointed. So when you look at traditional Islam, for example, and Islam as it's practiced, say in Saudi Arabia, what you will find is it is an Islamic law. So it's not just a case of, oh, well, you go and pray and you do that, but then you follow the rules. And there's lots of different religions in the society. There is one religion. There is one one set of rules and there is one person in charge and that is God or his humanly appointed divine representative for example and this gets to the heart of what um, is a key distinction between Christianity and the other monotheistic religions such as Islam. Christianity is typically a religion of orthodoxy, it's a religion of beliefs, okay? So you hold the beliefs and then you just get on with the norms and the rules and the customs of the society you are in. Whereas for a religion of orthopraxy, so orthodoxy is about belief, orthopraxy is about practice. For a religion of orthopraxy, it's all about your actual behaviours. So that's why in Islam we have Sharia law, which dictates what you can do in every situation. And when we look at Jewish law, for example, which is of course the context in which Jesus was teaching, we see all these rules about what you can eat, what you can what fabrics you can mix. If you look in the Old Testament, for example, you know, with all the different rules about you can eat this with this and do this with this, because the religion of orthopraxy, which typically is a theocracy, means that the religion controls the politics as well. It controls everything. Whereas traditionally Christianity, and this is why Christianity seems to be very compatible with democracy, it has all been about these beliefs, but they aren't actually then governing your behaviours as well. So there's uh, like a famous quote that, you know, you can tell if somebody is a devout Muslim, for example, or devout Jew, uh, say an Orthodox Jew, because of how they dress, because it's part of the religion, rules about what you wear. Whereas if somebody's an evangelical Christian, unless they're, you know, swinging a crucifix around and singing Jesus is the son of God, you cannot really tell. You're not going to be able to tell because there's not really rules about what you can eat and what you can wear. So basically, my point here is just as a general introduction um, for Christians, the idea Jesus is a political liberator is quite radical because there's typically been this separation of Jesus as this divine, godlike spiritual figure who's sort of surrounded by little angels and clouds, you know, and is protected by this bubble of divinity. And the idea that Jesus could be getting involved in worldly, gritty affairs such as poverty, rape, you know, um, abuse, exploitation, all these things, it seems to be a contradiction because the church likes to see Jesus, I think the Catholic Church in particular, represented by the former Pope, Pope Benedict XVI, likes to see Jesus as this, you know, perfect, precious figure who lives up there. He is God, if you like, surrounded by halos, when really this narrative of him being a political liberator paints him as a political 
revolutionary who is on the ground, who has got his megaphone, he's got his protest signs, and he's, you know, saying, ah, rah, 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 rah. so all of this, so it's fascinating to explore and discuss. Lots of key figures here, um, and actually, Pope Francis is sort of quite interested in the idea of liberation theology. And this is a great case study for the political liberator idea. The idea that what was important about Jesus was not that he was a son of God, not of the wisdom teachings that he gave, but it was of the political radicalism that he brought to proceedings. And this is probably best illustrated by uh, liberation theology associated with Latin America in the latter half of the 20th century. And figures such as Gustavo Gutierrez, Oscar Romero, Leonardo Boff, and most recently, Pope Francis. And this idea that Jesus Christ proposed a radical agenda for social change, which was based on a preferential option for the poor. So basically, in Latin America, you know, a lot of poverty, there was dictators in charge who were, you know, taking all the money, having all this lavish luxury. And then you had all the poor people in the country suffering, desperately suffering. They couldn't get health care. They couldn't get help, all of this. And what the liberation theologians were saying is that, look, if Jesus was here today, he wouldn't be stood here going, you know, let's all get into heaven. Let's think about that. They're saying he'll be rolling up his sleeves and he will be demanding a preferential option for the poor. Because they say, look, when you look to the Bible and you look to the New Testament in his um, Sermon on the Mount, for example, he is saying, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the poor in spirit. He is on the side of the oppressed. And the church, in separating church from state, has traditionally always tried to keep Jesus as neutral. Jesus doesn't get involved in that kind of issue, in that kind of debate. He doesn't take sides. The political um, liberation approach of liberation theology is arguing that Jesus Christ proposed a radical message for social reform on the side, he actively took sides on the side of the poor, of the exploited, of the oppressed of those who are hurt by society. So it's the idea that Jesus was a radical figure in terms of his political message and his agenda for social change. And so when we're looking at the person of Jesus Christ, what is unique about him, where his uniqueness and his status and his importance comes from, is his role as this political revolutionary, as this radical social reformer, calling for a preferential option for the poor in society. And liberation theology says that, um, you know, theology must start with um, action and lead to action. It's all about action. It's not about ideas. It's not about an afterlife. Never mind getting into heaven. How can we make a change in the world now? And that's where the distinction is. Traditionally, Catholicism and under Pope Benedict XVI, for example, is very much concerned with talking about heaven and talking about the afterlife and what's to come after this lifetime. What um, liberation theology does is drag, if you like, Jesus into the discussion of the conditions now. And they take from the Our Father prayer, the line, on earth as it is in heaven. So the idea that it's not about waiting to go to heaven, it's about creating the kingdom of God on earth here and now. So this is a most, most, most important point. 
Please make sure if you do an essay on the person of Jesus Christ, you get something to do with what he meant by the kingdom of God into your answer. Because this is a great point for discussion, a great point for debate. Did he mean by kingdom of God a literal kingdom up in the clouds, you know, outside of this world, a genuine actual kingdom up there, out there, where there is a heaven, where all the people who have been chosen and let in just live for millions of years, eating grapes, you know, waving down, you know, looking at what's going on in the world and just relax there. Or did he mean by kingdom of God, creating that kingdom based on the ideals he puts forward in the New Testament with a preferential option for the poor, with a radical agenda of equality and overturning all of the social injustice, does kingdom of God mean that? Does it mean social change in this real world or does it mean spiritual transformation in a metaphysical, external cloud-like world so that's a really really important thing to put in when jesus talks about the kingdom of god what does he mean a really interesting area of the political liberator approach is firstly Hayem Makobi, Makobi, I couldn't say his name then, uh, Makobi, who talks about Jesus, he says Jesus was a freedom fighter. So when Jesus was, um, you know, around and he was taking his disciples around and spreading his teachings, he was a radical freedom fighter, challenging the Jewish leadership of the day and challenging the Roman leadership of the day. And he wanted an empowerment of the poor and for them to stop exploiting the religion to keep people oppressed you know, and to, there was a lot of injustice and exploitation at that time. And then a really interesting point comes from James Cone, who um, talks about Jesus as the black Messiah. And this is black liberation theology. And the idea of looking at the Bible through a black lens. So it's, you know, it's a very contemporary approach, as you can imagine. And what James Cone says is, um, Jesus' Christianity is a religion of protest where he sides with those who are oppressed and he wants to challenge injustice. Uh, and he, James Cone, says Jesus is the black messiah. His message can be interpreted as calling for an end to racism, for, you know, the freedom from oppression, the freedom from exploitation and abuse, the freedom from slavery, for example. He said, this is how we need to read the Bible. Jesus as the black messiah, as the political liberator and radical revolutionary who is overturning the injustice and proposing a new model for living and a new socio-economic, socio-political agenda for life in this world. We can come back to that and say, well, Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's. And Jesus literally says, my kingdom is not of this world, which to me suggests, well, he's saying, you know, he's got another kingdom that is outside of this world somewhere else. But it's very, very interesting to be discussing these ideas and should this be the point of emphasis. An important evaluation point we can bring in there then is if we are reducing Jesus to just being a political liberator, and do you know what? There's loads of this. So there's like black liberation theology, queer liberation theology, feminist liberation theology. You know, every group that's been marginalised in society in the 20th century, 21st century, they have taken the teachings of Jesus and said, he is on our side. He is the underdog's champion, if you like. He is proposing a radical message of empowerment, which is very ironic considering the Catholic Church is steeped in all this wealth, corruption, you know, but we'll save that for another video. We'll get on to the Vatican's problems very soon, my loves. Don't worry about that. Um, but you can say, you know, 
They've got all of this. It's very political. But what does that mean for Jesus? Does that undermine his divinity? Does that undermine his status as the source of universal salvation? If Jesus is seen as too involved, does that not just reduce him to being another political protester? You know, does that mean we could then say, well, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, you know, and um, Greta Thunberg, um, Malala, all these amazing, amazing people who are fantastic. We're saying that there's equal to Jesus. The church is saying, Christianity is saying, Jesus is something more. Jesus is more like divine. He is divine as well as human. So the idea of him as a political liberator undermines that divinity. It undermines that spiritual nature of him because it's saying he's just like any other political liberator. He is essentially human. He's a human being with a political message. The church in trying to keep him separate has tried to safeguard Jesus as being this very divine figure so that he cannot be humanized. He cannot become a human being so then he can retain his idea as God and he can be seen as a source of salvation. So that is our little introduction to the person of Jesus Christ, exploring the ideas of the Son of God, the uh, idea of Jesus as a moral teacher, and the idea of the political liberator model. Please remember Rudolf Bultmann and his ideas about um, how we interpret the New Testament. Um, hermeneutics is the key word you need. I didn't use that word, no, I really should have done. Hermeneutics, do not forget that word. Hermeneutics is all about how we interpret um, the Bible and how we put it into context. So it's about our hermeneutics of suspicion, how we interpret the Bible and the text and consider it in its wider social context. I should have said that about, well, the video is 48 minutes long. I should have said that about 47 minutes ago. But I said it now, so well done for watching to the end because you just got your A star. <laughs> but um, thank you very much for watching. Fascinating ideas to discuss. As you can see, I love this topic. There's more to come very soon, but I now need to lie down in a dark room and a nice green tea, I think. I have a lovely, lovely day. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, uh, TikTok, and everything else. As Ben Waddle underscore. Have the best day, and I will see you very soon. Good luck. Take care. Bye-bye.